на трибунах олеют знамена, Облака под небесни плывут. На зеленом ковре стадиона разноцветные майки цветут. Hello and welcome back to the Russian Football News podcast. Finally, after having nine fingers clutched on the all-new, shiny and recently disinfected RPO trophy all season long, Sergei Semak, Zenit St. Petersburg were able to lift the cup in front of 10% of their fans at the Gazprom Marina on Wednesday evening. To discuss the latest matters in the world of Russian football, I'm your host, James Nichols, and I'll be joined by David Sanson. Hello, David. Hello, James. Good to be back again. And breaking up the regular lineup, the return of RFN writer Richard Pike. Hello, Richard. Good evening, guys. Good evening, James. Good evening, David. Good to, good to be on the pod again. Looking forward to it. Of course, there's only one place to start this week. And that's with our friends in the north. Zenit swept aside Krasnodar four goals to two away from home at the weekend, and thus were crowned champions of Russia for the second year in a row, and only the first team to win back-to-back titles since Leonid Slutsky's CSK in 2014. They then lifted that actually quite nice and modern trophy back in pit- back in home in Pitter on Wednesday, after coming from a goal down to defeat Zenit B. Sorry, no, Sochi. Now listen in, Zenit fans, because we're going to pretty much wax lyrical about this attacking trio for quite some time. Artem Zuba, Sardar Azmoun and Malcolm have been in fine fettle this season, combining to make the most exciting and tacking force in Russia since probably Quincy Promise departed our shores. David, do you think this is purely down to their talent, or does Sergei Semak deserve a little bit more praise for unlocking their potential? Um, that's a good question. I think, um, I mean, there's no doubt that all three of them in their own right are, are very talented players. You know, Zuba's had a fine long career without having... Uh, as Moon and Malcolm next to him, but um, I think there's no doubt that they all bring out, certainly As Moon and Zuba bring out the best in each other um, and have and forged a fine partnership even before the arrival of Malcolm. And I'll say his arrival started in March because we barely saw him until then. Um, thanks to, you know, uh, injury and pandemic. Um, you know, when, when it, before Malcolm was in, we had players supporting them like Drusi or Rigoni or Sutormin and it was never really there but then Malcolm comes in after the uh, Covid break and uh, Zenit were just looking on another level suddenly um, you know Malcolm clearly a very talented player you know come from Barcelona has you got to be some level of pedigree to be able to go and join Barcelona and uh, yeah, he just adds that extra dynamism to their team, especially on the counter-attack. He's, you know, he's very fast. He's very good on the ball. And, uh, you know, as a trio, they've got so many different options now. Juba is there for the headers. As Moon is there for the headers. As Moon can run onto long balls. Malcolm can run onto long balls. Malcolm go go down the wing. Malcolm can cross into Juba and As Moon. The, the link-up play between the two strikers is, is usually excellent. Um... And, you know, there's there's a reason why they're both among the top scorers in the league this season. You know, Juba's got 16 and Asmoon's got 14. That's fifth, that's 30 goals, which is over half of uh, Zenit's for the whole season, just between the two of them. Um, so, yeah, I think... Has Semak got anything to do with it? There's You know, they're, they're, they're three very talented players. Uh, I think, really, they could be given... Just go out and play as an extraction and they'd probably do very similar to what they're doing now um, so I don't don't want to diss Semak too much because he's clearly done a very good job um, but he's been giving a very nice set of tools to work with there 
Yeah, now on, on Malcolm, I thought myself that I didn't want to judge him too harshly because obviously he picked up an injury, a calf injury in August. And I was a hip injury, sorry, in August and missed the majority of the first half of the season. But the little glimpses that you did really see of him, you didn't see a lot from Malcolm. Obviously, he hadn't had a lot of game time at Barcelona. And it, it led to quite a few in the in the Russian media actually to, to question why this guy was at Barcelona and kind of wondering why he costs so much. But a lot of that early form was really down to, like we've mentioned before, the injury was the complete and utter lack of game time at Barcelona. And then the I think the kind of weight, weighted around his head, really, the, the price tag was was just heavy on his shoulders. And then, but since really the, the very first game back in the restart, he's been absolutely brilliant. He scored... Phew, Six goals, but he no, no, he's good. Four goals and two assists. He has in ten games, so six goals and assists in ten games since he's playing for playing for Zenit, and and the majority of them came in the last couple of weeks. And I think he's kind of added a little dimension to Zenit's attack that they missed in recent seasons. They missed, especially in the first half, to an extent with with kind of taking over from Dreese's position, who did all right, but that that three right now is great. And as followers of RFN on Twitter might have seen that. David yourself had got together a, a footage of Malcolm's goal uh, against Sochi, which is absolute worldy. It was really, really good finish. Uh, don't know about uh, coming to you for a second, Richard. Uh, so, do you think that Malcolm's been uh, the biggest impact, or is it? Uh, uh, would you give Semak a little bit more credit than David has in galvanising Senate together and getting these three, particularly these three, playing the way they have? Um, yeah, um, I, I, I've been impressed with Semak. Um, what has been impressed, obviously he has a very good, um, talented squad at his disposal. Um, no one can deny that. Um, however, what's where Semak has impressed me is how calm he is in game situations. He does study everything. And then when a change needs to be made, he's decisive and makes it. Um, I hark back to, I think it was just before the winter break of last season, I think it was. And Zenit went down in two games. Um, I think it was a loss away at Arsenal Tula and then a, I think it was a 2-1 defeat at home to Rubin. And I think Samak for a couple of those matches, I think, and for a match to around that as well, I think he switched to a three at the back formation. And it was clearly obvious that after two or three games trying that, it didn't work. So after what after that, what he did was obviously he um, switched back, switched to a 4-4-2 um, and then crucially took the big gamble and sold... Um, Paredes to um, Paris Saint-Germain for um, 40 million and then reinvested that money, bringing in um, Wilmar Barrios, Yaroslav Rakitsky and um, and Asmoon and had a little bit of change to Spur as well. And um, so you have, to, you have to definitely give him credit for that. Um, obviously, saw tactic wasn't working, took a gamble, definitely took a gamble because Paredes was a very good player for Zenit. And, um, but you have to say it worked out really well, and then the four-four-two really suited them. What I like is as well, he seems to take his time with a formation and tactic before amending it, and I do think that helps players, allows them to get comfortable and familiar with it. And a calm demeanour seems, um, you know, the calm demeanour that he demonstrates on the touchline, it's in such contrast to um, Lucescu and Mancini, because you only had to look at, um, and I think that rubs off on players. So long as you can back yeah. that up with results and encouraging performances, the players will will um, respect you, and then that allows you to proceed with your plans, and the players will follow. 
yeah, certainly, without a doubt. It's it's quite funny as well, looking back at that game. I think we, we've discussed it before, and then that, that match was obviously with Ruben 1-2-1. It was a double from one of David's favourite players in the league right now, Diego Sorokin, who got the win. But if you look at the Zenit starting lineup from that game, it's it's literally night and day with people like Anyukov and Luis Nieto, uh, uh, Hanani, Robert, Mark, yeah, and Shatov all starting like, these games. Like it, uh, You've got to give Semak credit for not just unlocking these three's potential, but as you mentioned yourself, in, in building a foundation for the rest of the team to basically allow them three to be like, right, go and do you, do you, you go do what you want. Because when they're playing like that, like they have been against the second half in Krasnodar, where they were just interchanging positions, interweaving around each other, completely different types of style of play and just kind of, it was it was very much just freestyle football to an extent at some times. And, the rest of the team is the base to allow them to do that. And I think Senate, uh, Semak deserves the utmost credit for doing that because Roberto Mancini never managed to, to do that whatsoever. And if you if you go away from Russian football, you go to a wider European audience, they've probably never heard of Sergei Semak and everybody has heard of Roberto Mancini beforehand. But on top of having probably the best team in the pitch, one of the best managers on the sidelines... Zenit, of course, right now the richest team in Russia. But aside from that, they're probably the smartest navigators in the transfer market. Now, over the course of the last two years, the signing have been hugely influential. And in 2019, Zenit even managed to make a profit of 10 million euros, according to some uh, investigating from RFN writer Hanu, which you can find on his Twitter. And uh, compare that to 2017-18 alone, in which they spent over 80 million euros under Mancini and on an influx of players with really only three of them considered success stories whatsoever. David, just how impressed have you been with Zenit in the transfer window specifically over the last two years under Semak? I mean, you look at the transfer record, uh, pretty much everyone who's arrived so far has, has been, you know, brilliant. Um, just to rattle them off, you know, Douglas Santos, you know, fantastic, fantastic addition. Wilmar Barrios, one of the best midfielders in the league. Um, definitely the best defensive midfielder in the league. I feel like that's a statement I can easily say. Um, Asmoon obviously joined last winter along with Rakitsky, and those two basically help them charge and win the league. Um, Rakitsky is especially a very smart signing. You know, for years, Zenit's defence had always been an issue. You know, they had Ivanovic, but then who did they partner in? They partnered with, with Neto, and they partnered with whoever else they could manage to get in there. But Rakitsky coming in, speaking the language already, being used to the style of football already, and then adding in all his technical ability that he's got, you know, with dead ball situations, passing. It was a masterstroke. And, you know, at 10 million, even despite his age, it was it's one of the best buys they've done. Um, you know, the Argentines from Mancini's uh, spell, you know, hit and miss. Uh, I think we can sort of leave our judgment on Mamana because he's been out injured for quite so long. Uh, Rigoni and Drusi have sort of been up up and down. Drusi obviously the better of the two. Uh, and not to mention Karavayev. Um, you know, we talk about all the foreigners, but Karavayev was a Russian who came in, granted, from a foreign club. Uh, and he's taken the right-back spot for his own. He's pushed Smolikov out. He's made Anyukov retire. Um, and that that was, you know that was a great bit of business because I think everyone was expecting him to maybe stay abroad for a couple more years. But Zenit just decided, no, we're going to do this. We're going to make this move now. We're going to get him in for however much it was. I want to say six or seven million euros. And yeah, he just come in and made the position his own and got into the Russian national team. 
Um, I'm surprised he's not made more than one, just just the one cap that he's managed so far. Um, so so yeah, I mean, definitely definitely some amazing moves in the last couple of years, and for good money on the whole. You know, the the Malcolm one aside was was big money, and I think certainly needed that sort of as we said that sort of big money move to sort of given the hello Europe, we're still here, but. Um, <laughs> But yeah, yeah, terrific, terrific stuff from him in the transfer window recently. Yeah, and it's it's obviously not just Semak; it's a kind of whole team. Obviously, after taking over after the unfortunate passing of Konstantin Sarsenia, it's Sergei Fasenko in his new role as president, kind of surprisingly doing such a great job after after fluffing it up a little bit with in charge of Mancini. But it's it's the direction that Zenit are going in now, and I think. You mentioned there yourself that it's it's been sensible transfers apart from the Malcolm one, which is it's certainly it's it's Zenit being Zenit. The flashing the cash because they can, and not just because they can, but I think it's the whole expectance. People expect them to do so to an extent. It's it Real Madrid, the Galacticos sort of thing. Like Zenit kind of have that reputation as the Galacticos of Russia, if you could want to make a kind of anachronistic comparison. And I've, I've mentioned ourselves in conversation that. You look at people like Alexis Sutoman, who's been a, a solid purchase from Orenberg for next to nothing. I mean, literally, literally next to nothing, like £100,000, if that. And, uh, and he's been, he's done a job for Zenit. He's, he's a backup player. And he's, he, personally, I think he's, he's he's not really a player of their level, but he's, he's more than capable when he comes in. But he's the sort of man who, like Oleg Shiatov has right now and others in the past who've kind of, suffered in that they're not a huge name and Zenit need that huge name they, they always will do and they always have done in recent times and I, I think people like Malcolm they spend that money because they want to get better in Europe they buy Caravaia for, for the domestic they buy Malcolm for European glory at, at least try and do so now Richard coming on to yourself regarding the transfers uh, is there any that really stand out to you that, that, that maybe a little bit of a surprise or that, that I've really taken you by a shock or, or just been like an overall general success I think Barrios has really really impressed me um, I've been very very impressed with him I like how he can just um, do the defensive side of things and then transition to attack he's got good mobility a good first touch he covers well covers a lot of ground a lot of defensive work and off the ball stuff for the team I'd say Barrios has really really impressed me um, I would also say, yeah, I, I agree with David entirely. Um, Rakitsky was an excellent signing. Um, great at distributing the ball. Speaks the language. That's um, that's a huge plus. Um, Asmun has done really well too. I think they're the three, Asmun, Barrios and Rakitsky. I think getting those three in for the money that they got from PSG for Paredes was, was, was great. So they're the three that definitely stand out. I've been impressed with Douglas Santos too. I think he's done um, a really good job since coming in from the uh, second Bundesliga with Hamburg. Um, I think he's added some solidarity. And um, and also, yeah, Karavayev. Um, once again, you've got to take your hat off to um, Samak and Zenit for identifying him. I actually think now there's going to be quite an interesting battle with the Euros being put back next year for um, the right-back slot now because I know Fernandez is a very good player, Mario Fernandez, but I think he's got some competition now from um, Karavayev. And if Kravyev keeps developing, you know, I think that's going to be um, quite an intense fight for that uh, right back spot on um, Spornaya for Euro 2021. Yeah, so I think so, certainly. I mean, personally, I think Mario Fernandez is the best right back in the league, but Karavayev is, is, is young, he's up and coming. He's definitely a good, uh, a good sort of uh, 
rival for Mario Fernandez for the position, and especially more than Smolnikov has been over the last couple of years. Yeah, pretty I agree dreadful with that. for Sporting and David, I hear, you want to come in on this one, maybe on the uh, on the transfers. Well, yeah, just on just on Douglas, I think actually, you know, Douglas was obviously a left back uh, in Hamburg, and I think we thought he was coming in to play at left back, um, but really he's actually struggled to push Zhirkov out of his spot, despite you know his exceedingly old age. Now, how old is he now? Zhirkov, 30, 36, 37 later this year, but Zhirkov's, you know, he's. He's still going and he's still having a very good season, let's be honest, uh, to the point that uh, Santos is actually more playing as a left winger or a central midfielder often, which is really odd to see. Sometimes you you see him pushing up into midfield or central midfield like that. And it's, it's strange when you consider how what position they signed him to play. Um, but, you know, long term, he's he's going to be their player. And you, you think uh, about the... The, the squad rules changing. So obviously this season, Zenit can only name six foreigners on the pitch at any time. Next year, the, the limit's changing. You, it's more of a squad rule. But they could play all 10 of their foreigners at once if they wanted. So Douglas, Barrios, Asmoon, Ivanovic, Malcolm, uh, Rikitsky, Mamana if they want to, Driussi, Rigoni if they want to. They could play all of those at once. And players like Sutormin who you know, are bought in every year. Russians are bought him are bought in every year because they need Russians in the squad. They need them to be decent enough to fill in for when the foreigners aren't, you know, aren't fit or need a rest or whatever. They they're going to lose their value a little bit um, because Zenit, you know, really can next year just put the put the pressure on the rest of their teams and just play all their good big players at once. Uh, and that that will be interesting to see what they do there. You know, is Drusi and Rigoni going to get a bit more game time now that? the limit's going to allow them to potentially play more. Yeah, I must admit, I was a little bit surprised looking through the, the, Zenit, the Zenit lineup in general. I mean, I, because it's Zenit, you, you presume that they've got more foreigners than they have, and they've always had a, a large influx of foreigners in the team. But I was genuinely shocked to see that even if, say, they moved on people like Jordan Osorio, who's genuinely expected to go back on his, his look back to his parent club, Porto, uh, perhaps if Ivanovic didn't get a new contract, but even though it's rumoured that he will be, that even if they get rid of these foreigners, you think in Spartak, oh, God, they need to get rid of foreigners to get down the limit. Zenit have already got 10. They've got room for manoeuvring in the transfer market to get even better. And interestingly enough, on, on the idea of playing them all together is that with Santos at left-back, I mean, it, it it's weird because you would expect him to come in as a left-back. And, and when Zhirkov plays, he, he provides the width. He's the one, he hugs the touchline. He's there all day long. I mean, he's probably only there all day long because his Zimmer frame can't get too far or close into the pitch. But still, when Douglas plays, it's a much more central position. Douglas kind of, it's it's like that Guardiola inverted wing back thing, and and it's it fits down to the Semax tactics himself of this sort of asymmetrical system that he's got, where it's often either Yelakin or Kuzayev on the left wing, with usually Douglas Santos behind them, and they they took in both of them. Neither of them really provide a huge amount of width, and then. The overload on the right-hand side with like Malcolm pushing forward to support Asmun and Zuba. You've got Ozdoyev pushing forward from the right-back, Kalavayev. The, the overload, that side of the pitch, and a lot of teams, especially the smaller teams, like, like let's say Ural, because Andrew's not here and he can't shout at me for that. <laughs> they, they they can't handle it. They, they, they don't really, just don't have the ability to be able to stand toe-to-toe with a team that's clearly head and shoulders above them in terms of finances, in terms of talent on the pitch, in terms of pure, when it comes down to pure quality. And it's about it's 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 to be honest, it's even as a Spartak fan, it absolutely pains me to see this. But it is refreshing to see Zenit play 
more like you would expect Zenit of recent times to do so, rather than the one under Mancini, which was just stagnant. It was stodgy. The players looked like they were a team who had never played together before. And then going back to the signings again, the people that they signed was just like a, a who's who of Argentinians and Italians and whoever else that don't never really gelled together. Sema came in, got them together, brilliant man of management, stuck his arm around Zuba, stuck his arm around Ozdoyev and said, you're my number one guy. You're the one who's going to start. You're the core of this team. And then added to that with some of the best recent signings I can think of in, in recent years in the RPL. And I don't mean big marquee signings like Malcolm, but just sensible signings that you just see that and it just makes complete sense. And then you see them play and it just immediately impressed by the style of play like Barrios, like Rakitsky. And pers- from a personal perspective, I, I, I'm, I watch a little bit of Ukrainian football, but not a great deal. And I genuinely didn't know that Yaroslav Rakitsky was as genuinely technically gifted on the ball as he is. You kind of get the impression from afar that he's, he's just a big brute. And he is, don't get me wrong. He, he, that, the penalty the other week against Zenit was because the, because the opposition player essentially ran into a human brick wall. But on the ball, he, he, he's... he's probably the best centre-back in the league in terms of pure ability on the ball, and it's not even close. And the, Like we said, they're the easiest team in Russia, but... The easiest, sorry, best team in Russia by far, but going forwards now, moving on to maybe Senate of now, but what the next steps are. There's a lot of talented youngsters in and around the Zenit team, and have been for a couple of years, but Zenit themselves generally do get a little bit of criticism for their lack of youth development, or rather not giving these talented youth players a chance in the team. Now, Richard, on to you first. Do you think, you before the restart wrote a quick piece on the side focusing on some of the youth players who could make their breakthrough this season. A number of them were at Zenit. I don't know if you want to go into more detail on a couple of those players that you mentioned in the article on the side. Yes, absolutely, guys. Um, the two the two main ones, from the look of it, the, the two most promising youngsters at the moment at Zenit 2, obviously the second um, team, the firm team in the um, third level of Russian football, the PFL, are um, Daniel Shamkin and um, Daniela Prokin. Um, Shamkin has just turned 18. He made, I think it's 13 games, played 13 games for Zenit 2 before their season was curtailed due to the coronavirus this season. I think he scored three goals and one assist. I think he even scored against Leon in the under-19s UA for Youth League as well uh, for Zenit's under-19s. Uh, he's literally just turned 18, I think a week or two ago, I think. And then the second one is uh, Danila Prokin, who is uh, a 19-year-old um, central defender. He's actually the captain of um, Zenit 2, and I think he played... Yeah, sorry, no, I think he played... He did play 19 games... Uh, sorry, 12 games for Zenit 2 again before the season was curtailed. I think he also played as well in the um, UEFA Youth League for um, Zenit uh, on the 19s too. Um, Shamkin, yeah, attack, he's down as an attacking midfielder, second striker. Um, so, yeah, if the formation at Zenit evolves, maybe could be put at the head of a 4-3-3, a midfield formation. Um, and the good thing, the thing about Prokin is what's quite interesting is that Zenit, obviously, we've had this situation before with Zenit with a young centre-half when Roberto Mancini uh, was it threw in Ilya Skrobotov at 17 for um, a couple of games. And I think he got subbed off before half-time in one of them. I think he was just so out of his depth. But, um, but Prokin does look like he has a lot more experience than Skrobotov did at the youth teams when um, he's promoted to um, Zenit's first team just recently. He's been on the bench for the last couple of games. So um, obviously there's there's going to have to be that 
be careful element of it because obviously you know um, you don't want to throw players in too early as we've seen in recent weeks at Siskar with uh, Vadim Karpov um, who just looks hopelessly mm-hmm. out of his depth. We, we've all said that. Um, and there's universal yeah. approval across all of our chat about that. Um, but yeah, those two look the most promising, um, Prokin and Shamkin. And I think when I when I posted my, um, when that was tweeted out, I think um, some of the guys who handled the Zenit Twitter said that, yeah, they've watched some of these Zenit too and those two look the most promising of all the players um, in the yeah. two-team at the moment. With the pressure off now, it would be nice to see some of these younger lads getting a go, at least, because get, get Zenit a bit more prepared for the future when it comes to the academy. And, and obviously, midweek against Sochi, uh, Leon Masayev, the young 20-year-old midfielder, got a start and didn't have the best of games, to be perfectly honest. But it's nice to see Zenit, uh, Semak giving, giving the young lad a chance instead of just sticking all the B-team in like they, like they usually do. You know, David, why do you think that these talented youngsters haven't really been given a chance in the past, and especially like when the reserve team? I don't mean Zenit two, but like the Zenit second team, really, like the Yeraki and Smolnikov and and Jerkov, maybe to an extent, all all come in ahead of them instead. David, I think I think um, for Zenit, it's just basically uh, you know they're too centralized on winning. They they have to win. Uh, and that's not a bad thing, um, you know. Zenit, Zenit are a team that thrive and exist on winning. We saw them struggle when they when they dropped into the Europa League a few years back financially. You know, they 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 were really like struggling to keep things together a little bit there. Um, and so for them, winning is the thing that comes first, no matter what. Even when sometimes we've seen Zenit leading a game two 0 with a couple of minutes to go, we've still seen them, uh, you know, bring on their older, experienced players rather than. You know, oh, we're too like let's just chuck a young lad in and see how just see how he can get on. But no, they're gonna we'll, we'll play Yurgin, we'll play uh, Smolnikov, we'll play Shatov for the, for the last five minutes just to see this game out because they've got experience and they know what to do. Uh, but now that obviously the league is all won and done for, um, that sort of has I think been brought back a little bit. We saw them, you know, against Sochi. Sochi era, you know, been a decent team this season, and we saw them rotate a little. Uh, just to some of the players who really aren't getting the game, haven't been getting you know many starts throughout the season. Um, but the game didn't really go to plan. You know they were one all for most of the game, well for you know, up until the sixty whatever minute. Uh, so they said right, right, we need to we need to win here. We you know we're in it. We need to win. We're not bringing the kids on. We're going to bring on Asmoon. Uh, and that's that's fine. You know. There's still games to play. The, the, the league is still sewn up. There's still time for these kids to maybe get a little bit of game time before the end of the season. Uh, I know Shamkin actually got his debut uh, in the 7-1 against Ural just before the uh, COVID break, wasn't it? Um, he came on for, I think, the last 10 minutes when the game was well and truly sewn up at 7-0. Um, so that <laughs> that's one example where, yeah, they could sort of take not have to worry about losing, I think. Um <laughs> But yeah, I think uh, Zenit is just very, very driven on winning, and that's not a bad thing, um, generally. Uh, but it, it, it means that unless they've really got something special on their hands, they can't necessarily afford to blood the young players, um, just in case, as we've seen yeah. on a couple of occasions. It's very much just a different approach and really different perspective from teams like Krasnodar, where it's it's evident that Sergei Galietsky would love to win the league and love to qualify for the Champions League. That's that's a, that's a given. But I think he would probably love even more if he was doing that or maybe finishing second or just getting in the Champions League at all with a team of 11 young lads who came through the Krasnodar Academy. And it's it's just where these teams 
differ in the complete structure and the setup and how they ran and how they always will be run, really. And Zenit aren't Krasnodar. They, they never be, they never have been known in recent modern memory of getting the young lads through the system. They wait for everybody else to do that, then go buy them, <laughs> essentially. And if that works for Krasnodar, that quite frankly, that's all that matters, basically. Can I come well, in there quickly, guys? I actually listened to um, a, a thing on Tifo football. I think it was about Barcelona, and it was quite interesting how their academy has, has obviously stopped producing players recently. And there might be a, a few little comparisons, because if you think about it, the last two major youth products at Zenit, who you could say went on to have a spectacular career, were obviously Alexander Kurtzakov and um, Andrea Shavin, both of whom came through at the turn of the millennium just after around 2001, 2002. And that was obviously pre-Gasprom takeover. So yeah, it's what, what what we've just been saying there is obviously Zenit have to keep winning now. So the the level is so high. Whereas Xavi and Iniesta also and uh, Puyol and one or two at Barcelona came through about that same time. But again, Barcelona are enduring a difficult time at the turn of the millennium. Um, but now because the level's sky high, like at Zenit, it's so difficult for youngsters to break through. They have to be optimum quality. Yeah, certainly. And with with Zenit, it's it, it's I would criticize if it was my own personal team, I would criticize them a little bit for kind of short-termism to an extent in that sense is they're always looking more so on the now rather than what you know going to happen in a couple of years but think, if it's so successful right now it, it doesn't really matter i think uh, the thing with zenit is it's so easy for them to you know okay look we, we haven't got time to give this guy a breakthrough we're just going to sell him stick a buyback clause and if, if he comes good we can just buy him yeah. back they've done it with yeah. so many players denis terenchev was one of them you know Granted, he's never he. They brought him back, and he played seven times after they re-signed him from Rostov. Uh, but they're going to do that with. They've done that with Krugovoy from Ufa. They signed him last summer, and uh, he'll be coming in to contest their left back spot with Douglas Santos and maybe Zhirkov if he uh, doesn't retire. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, and that's, that's that's such an easy out for them. They've done it plenty of times over the years. Signed, so Sutor Min was another one. You know, they let him go at a young age. He's gone around the system. Finally, had. You know, come through, come good at Orenburg, and they signed him back again. And now it's like, when it comes to Champions League next year, he'll count as a homegrown player because he came through their academy, and that's just easy, you easy. You for see them. people criticizing Zenit for this as well, like they criticize them for basically just flashing the cash and, and saying, oh, "It's fine, well, doesn't matter if I get rid of him at the academy, we can get them back," as you mentioned. But it's it, when they get criticised for this, it's almost as if nobody else in the league does it. I mean, Spartak Moscow literally done that with Ayaz Guliev this season or last this calendar year. They brought yeah, the exactly. Sentinel Rostov, stuck a bio clause, and brought him back. And to be honest, barely played him again. Lakomatiev done that a couple of years ago. Arsha Koya and every single big team does it. But when it's Zenit spending the money, it's different to where every other big team spending the money. And to be fair, Zenit they're the only one out of the big ones who have made a decent profit. And Siska are fifty million down in there in terms of their um, profit loss margin in twenty nineteen. Now Zenit, to be honest to them, they just they stay strong and then they're always about being at the very best as when they can. And it's it kind of reminds me of that Sir Alex Ferguson uh, when he was Man United boss the aphorism that the best time to strengthen is when you're at your strongest. But do you think Zenit could get better? I feel like of looking away from the youth products, but to the now is that Ivanovic is aging a little bit. For me personally, they need some more star quality on the other wing for the games in Europe, as well as the three they already have. They need, to, and then just personally question marks over Lunyev and goal. Now, Richard, where do you think that the Zenit could strengthen? 
Yeah, I, I concur with that about maybe another player on the wing um, to supplement. I mean, if we we don't know about Artem Zuba, we'll get onto this a bit later on. We don't know about Artem Zuba yet, whether he'll still be there next season. So maybe another player on the wing to supplement Malcolm and Asmoon in attack. Um, here's an interesting one. Maybe a, another backup striker to Asmoon's um, in case Zuba leaves. Someone who can back up Asmoon, happy to um, be back up, play some of the cup matches, maybe come in here and there after midweek European games when you're playing someone you know quite lower in the table. I think central defence is the big issue, though, for Zenit. Um, it's a 50-50 call for me whether they should renew um, Ivanovic's contract given his age. Um, I guess you could say... It's a safe option and there's the element of um, continuity. But then, yeah, the age option and, you know, you don't know what another year will do on a player. Um, but again, I'm not totally sold on Osorio, you know. And, um, you know, he's only played, uh, I think, 13 times all season in all competitions to Venezuela when they brought in on loan from Porto. So, you know, that does say to you, does Samat really rate him that much? If he's only played him 13 times in all games, considering Zenit have had Russian Cup... Um, um, games they've had Champions League games and then straight after three four days afterwards they've been playing in the league. Um, so yeah, you know if Samat was keen on him, maybe he would have been using him a little bit more. Mamama has quality obviously at centre half. Um, however, he is quite frequently injured. We just hope that when he gets back fit again, he can actually stay fit. Um, as for goalkeeper Lunyov, I'd leave that just for now. Um, he's not perfect, Lunyov, but to be fair, I watched the um, the Krasnodar game and I watched the highlights of it, and he did make some good saves in that game. The, the penalty save was very good uh, on Krasnodar, the double save. Uh, the first penalty shot wasn't great, but to save a rebound, it's always good for my keeper to do that. Um, I'd leave I'd leave Lunyov for now. To, to be truthfully honest with Lunyov, I'd actually have him over Guillermo in the Russian national team. Uh, I don't know about you two guys. I'm I'm not totally sold on Guillermo. I mean, I think I think Safonov will be the number one for um, the Russian national team going forward post-Euro 2021 because I think he's just got he's got everything about him as a young keeper. Um, but I'd leave Lunyov for now. One, one young Russian keeper abroad is um, Ivan Zlobdin at Benfica. I think he's 22-23. I think he's now second choice at Benfica. So it'd be interesting to see. Maybe I'd monitor that kind of development going forward. Um, keep an eye on, on, on um, Zlobnin. As for the backup keeper, uh, one here's one for you guys. About backup keep, uh, sorry, backup striker, not backup keeper, sorry. Um, what about Lutsenko from Arsenal Tula? Because he's obviously had a very good season. Um, I think he scored, is it 14, 15 goals? He's pretty much been Arsenal Tula's life insurance. And, you know, they're not fully safe from relegation yet. Only got one year left on his contract at 33. Big, tall, strong centre forward. He scored a brilliant goal the other day, cross into the box. Just wondering a bit, being a backup at Zenit, playing against smaller teams, like after the European games, they can rest as Moon, keep him fresh in the cup matches too. You know, at his age, 33, I guess he might not play regularly, but, you know, chance to play in the European competitions with Zenit, chance to compete for trophies. Yeah, it's an interesting one there with uh, Lutsenko. I'm not sure whether whether that's the one. I think it will all depend on whether Jew believes. I think they don't really need a foil for him. Um, because I think he's quite a low-energy player, where so he can sort of play week in, week out quite regularly without sort of expanding too much energy, just because of his own play style. Um, and obviously, with the return of Kokorin coming back from his loan at Sochi or his punishment at Sochi, um, it'll be interesting to see. I think if the, if the squad stays the same, they won't need to bring another striker. I don't think personally. Um, but that'll all depend on yeah whether uh, one of Zuba or Asmoon leave. Obviously, with Zuba's contract um, meant to be up and Asmoon linked to all and sundry. Um, 
So yeah, that would be interesting. Goalkeepers, yeah, I, I think I agree. They 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 don't need to worry about a goalkeeper for now, and um, yeah, certainly need to bring in another defender. I think uh, with the with the changing of the limit, I think we could see maybe some foreign goalkeepers coming back to the to the Premier League. We, you know, I think at the moment all the goalkeepers for all the sixteen clubs in the league are Russian, or I think in Orenburg's case, Belarusian. Uh, obviously, Guillerme is Brazilian, nationalized to Russian. Um, so I wonder if the 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 uh, loosening of the rules might might see the return of some foreign goalkeepers to Russia, which would be interesting. Um, you know, historically, Zenit have only gone for Russian goalkeepers because of that ruling, and Russia does have a good plethora of good goalkeepers. Um, but to take them to the next level, they need a very good goalkeeper or excellent goalkeeper, which Lunyov not necessarily isn't. Um, you know, at the national team level, he's not even number one still. Uh, and uh, you know, in theory, for Zenit, you'd want your goalkeeper to be in the Russian number one. Uh, obviously, for many years, it was Akinfeyev at Siska. Uh, so I wonder if. They might even consider going for a foreign goalkeeper, which would be uh, an interesting change for them. Yeah, I, th- I think so as well. It's definitely going to be a little less stockpiling of young Russian players and Russians in certain positions. One of our biggest gripes with the current uh, the current foreigners ruling is uh, the legionnaires ruling is that Russia ended up with a incredible sort of influx of very strong goalkeepers for a while, or very strong right backs for a while, but then come the World Cup, none of the central defensive midfielders were really what were thought up to up to the plate up till Yuri Gazinski suddenly had a, a very strong uh, World Cup run. But and, and I think Zenit themselves could benefit from that with the strengthening, but the problem with Zenit strengthening is that there's one big sort of elephant in the room that we've alluded to recently and whatever Zenit do in the transfer window is basically a knock-on effect of what happens in this case, and that is the future of Artem Zuba, the captain. Now his contract ends at the end of this season. There's no sign of a new deal as things stand being agreed yet. But so what? what's the latest on this, David? Uh, have, you, have you heard much in the pipelines regarding Zuba's future? No, I've not seen anything. Um, let's say there was reports recently in the last day or so that um, they'll, they'll look to keep Ivanovic on, which would be, I think, a wise move personally. Um, you know, him and Rikitsky are, are a formidable partnership in defence, even though they're both ageing. But sometimes experience is good and uh, they're dominant enough that they don't necessarily need the pace, as we saw with Siska for many years with the, the Berezuskis and Nikonshevich. Um, obviously, Zuba, we've seen him linked to foreign moves in the last couple of years. Uh, I think he's been in interviews declared his interest in a move to, certainly to the Premier League, but only if he can get into one of the bigger teams. Um, so... So yeah, it'll be it'll be an interesting one. I I wonder. I do wonder whether he'll stay on or whether he'll he'll go. It all depend on the author. I think he's. I think when there was rumours of a West Ham move um, at some point in the last eighteen months, he said that that wasn't really the level he was looking to play at. So the chances of a bigger club coming in for him do seem maybe quite slim. Uh, he is for a club who need that kind of striker. He is one of the best in the world. I think undoubtedly. Um, but not many big clubs need that kind of striker. Um, so I think, I'd, as much as I'd like to maybe say, see him go abroad and give it a go, I think the chances are he probably will end up staying uh, with Zenit, uh, mm-hmm. and at the very least in Russia. But who else is he going to go to in Russia? He's either going to stay at Zenit or he's going to go abroad at this stage in his career, you feel. Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. He's, he's going to do the small of where 
it's probably going to is either going to go now where it's probably a little bit too late ironically or what I, I personally feel he will sign a new contract at, at Zenit and, and continue to be the star there. Zuba's the sort of man who who thrives being the big fish in the big pond. He thrives being the centre of attention. So he's probably been the most effective and influential footballer in Russia or both on and off the pitch since the 2018 World Cup. And it was really that World Cup and ironically, the not even the start of the World Cup, there was no hype around Zuba. All the hype was around Smolov. He was on the front of GQ. He was on the front of Vogue. He was on the front of the, the official FIFA magazine at the time, which I'd never heard of. But the, the hype was around Smolov, around Jagoyev. And then Zuba came on in that route of Saudi Arabia and just kind of stole the show. And and the all of Russia fell in love with him, essentially, for a very long time. And I, I, I just think you'll thrive in that Zenit even further. And I can't see him moving abroad. On the other hand... There's also been heavy rumours of his strike partner, Sardar Azmoun, continuing to link the moves away. Even last month in The Sun, they had, don't don't buy The Sun, don't read The Sun, but they had, did have a, a huge headline that the Arsenal are closing in the Iranian Lionel Messi, which we've all heard a million times before. But do you think either Azmoun or Zuba could make it in the European top five leagues, Richard? It's interesting you say that, guys. Um... I actually think one place where Zuba could go, and I've been watching him a few times this season, I'm going to write an article about them in the next couple of weeks for another site, is um, is Sevilla. Because they look likely to finish fourth in La Liga, and therefore they could give him Champions League football. And I've actually been watching them, and they've been using Luke de Jong as, a, as their main striker in a 4-3-3 formation. And um, after he struggled at um, Newcastle and uh, Mönchengladbach, Luke de Jong, it's no surprise that he's struggling at Sevilla as well. He's your classical, score lots of goals in the Dutch league, but... I think he's only scored six goals in 31 games for Sevilla, and I've watched a lot of them, so a lot, lot of lot of Sevilla this season. So, yeah, I could see Zuba there as the main man um, at the tip of a 4-3-3. He's got Lucas Acampos to the right of him, an Argentine winger who's he's been the main the main attacking threat. So, I, I could see him at Sevilla if he's going to go abroad. Um, they could offer him Champions League football. He'd be a free signing. You know, they're they're going to be gold dust this summer. Uh, free signings. So I'd say it's probably 50-50. I'd probably lean like you guys in towards him signing a new contract and staying at Zanit, but I think Sevilla could be a tempting option. Champions League football on offer, two or three years down in Andalusia, lovely weather. So yeah, it's sort of 50-50. I'm probably leaning towards him signing a new contract, but the Sevilla option could be a tempter. There is a nice little history of uh, players moving from Russia to Spain as well, obviously with Smolov last year and and going all the way back to the nineties with people like Mustavoy and and Carpine. There's a huge tradition of Russians moving to Spain and obviously now Spanish T V rights of they've acquired the rights to to show the Russian games as well. So that, that could be an interesting one and I, and it, it would definitely suit that style in the in the sort of tar- target man mould at Sevilla. David, do you think that either of them could make it or do any rumours of where they could go or do you expect them both to stay in Zenit? Um, it's. I think in their own right, they're both good strikers, and given the right tactical situation, they they you know they both could do a good job in in a top five league somewhere. Uh, um, but they just play so well together, isn't it? They would seem almost a shame to break them up. You know, they've got this great bond going together and this great partnership. Um, and it would be nice to see them again in the Champions League. You know, this year was their first year back in the Champions League after a while. Uh, and they did all right, but they they could have done better. And it would be good. I think they'd like to give themselves that challenge of 
of uh, you know getting that partnership working in the Champions in the Champions League again next season. Um, but you know, no doubt, no doubt, Asmun could go somewhere and play very well. You know, now that we know that he works, I mean, I suppose we did know that he worked in a in a nice working partnership um, when he was at Rostov. You know, working alongside Polos and Bukharov, he was excellent. Um, so we knew he would work in this sort of in this sort of tactical situation and alongside a big man and a and a speedy guy, and it's working again. So he can easily make it. We've said it. You know, we've seen his quality over the years. Um, but I think I think they'd both may be inclined to give it another year in Russia. Yeah. I, I kind of well the Spartak fan in me hopes that doesn't happen because the longer these all play together, the the less likely it is for anybody else to catch up. But the Russian football fan in me would like them to, to really stay for another year together at least and, and build this repertoire. And I, I do think that it's a little bit of inevitability that Asmoon will move abroad at some point with his age. He's, he's got everything on his side. It's unlike Zuba, who's now the wrong side of 30. He's, he's, he's been in Russia a long time, Asmoon, but he's not Russian. He's, like I say, he's young. And I think I do think a move is inevitable at some point in his career. But for the RPL, I do hope it's not quite yet. But, of course, the, the big interesting subplot behind all of this is Alexander Kokorin. Now, he's returned after prison, his prison sentence, and he's pretty much scoring for Vun down at Zenit's farm team in the south, Sochi. Now, he wants to return to Zenit, and Semak didn't even want him to, to go out on loan in the first place. But the Zenit, hierar- Zenit sorry, hierarchy, and particularly Sergei Fisenko, were keen to make this move happen and, and to get Kokorin out of St. Petersburg on loan down at Sochi for the season. Do you think Kokorin could step up and become a big part player, just like Zuba himself did? On his return on loan from Arsenal Tula, if I start with you, David. Um, I think there's no doubt Kokorin's going to come back in. <laughs> um, uh, and let's be honest, he he was a good striker before he went to prison. You know, he he had that sort of year or two where he was struggling, and then I think he was under Mancini. He had that really amazing spell where he was just scoring for absolute fun. And uh, despite you know his spell in prison and off the pitch. Uh, he's come back, and he's, you know, he's obviously in good shape still, and he's and he's looking very good for Sochi. Um, so despite despite what we all might think of him, he's he's definitely going to come in and do a decent job. But um, as any when he comes back, only you know, in most cases, it's an easy job as well. You know, he's he'll he'd suit well in the in the role that Asmoon plays, and if Asmoon does go, I think Kokorin's a perfect replacement in there for him. Uh, and we've seen Asmoon, uh, not Asmoon, we've seen Juba and Kokorin work in that partnership for. Uh, for many years now, so he's definitely going to come in. He's definitely going to play a role. Um, you know, we all knew that his spell down in Sochi wasn't even really what Zenit wanted, um, but it was the powers that be decided. You know, we got to make it look like we're at least punishing him, uh, so we're going to do this and send him down, send him down there. So, um, so yeah, it's it's just just a little delay in Kakorin's Zenit career, really. Um, this this spell away, and yeah, he'll definitely definitely come back yeah without a doubt I mean you mentioned that spell under Mancini I think you got eight and ten games at the start of the season when Zenit kind of blew everybody away and then fell apart with the usual winter curse affecting them now Richard aren't you do you think that Kokorin will walk back into the team and and kind of put a spanner in the works for this uh, uh, Asmoon and Zuba partnership 
Quite possibly, yes. Um, you know, he has experiences. Um, he's played in four-three-three formations before during his career. I think as well with Zenit, COVID's going to obviously affect the transfer market this summer too. So, you know, getting Kokorin back is, you know, a big, big, a big thing because you know they don't have to spend any money. And um, yeah, hopefully, like I say, it might be the thing that you know he's twenty-nine now, Kokorin. He's got to know, you know, almost use in the same way that Zuba went on loan to Arsenal Tula just before the World Cup. Almost, almost give him a, a second lease of life, new motivation. And since he's come back to Zenit after that World Cup, he's just been absolutely outstanding. So. Yeah, hopefully. I'm really hopeful that he does do something, Kokorin. And um, he's still, like, like like David said, he's still in very good shape. Um, he's been scoring goals. Um, yeah, I do. I think there's something there for him at Zenit still. Um, and he would work quite well with Zuba if Asmin went. So, yeah, I, I could I could potentially see it. Yeah, I could potentially see it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite clear as day that Kokorin's always going back to Zenit from the start. It's not a... When the prison sentence happened, to to recap listeners, Pavel Mamayev was released by Krasidar almost immediately, and then subsequently picked up by Rostov. Kokorin wasn't. Kokorin was has always stayed at Zenit, contracted to Zenit. And to be quite honest, Kokorin being sent down to Sochi didn't really seem like Kokorin wanted to go there. Semak didn't want him to go there. And to be honest, I don't think any of the Zenit hierarchy themselves wanted to go there. The entire thing seemed like Right, well, we're not going to do what Krasnodar did because at the end of the day, you're probably one of the best players in the team and we want you to come back and score for us. So go down there for six months and as Richard, you brilliantly put it, go and have a holiday on the Black Coast for six months and come back and be fine and then you can be <laughs> like the guy and come back into the team. Like, it's it's quite pure and simple that. Like, and even if both Zuba and Asmoon still stay at Zenit, Kokorin will come back and be involved in the first team with horrifically strong strength and depth at the top end of the pitch, bringing into account Malcolm and Juliusi as well, but also for Europe. So it's just an inevitability that he will be involved and probably will score goals for Zenit next season, irregardless of Zuba or Asmund's futures. Now, from the rosy surroundings at the top, we're going to move on to the local circus back down in mid-table. And of course, everybody already knows what team that'll be. It's Spartak. They lost at the weekend to Tambov 2-3 at home. And after the game, it was announced that General Director Thomas Zorn had been rather surprisingly relieved of his duties. Now, with head coach Domenico Tedesco also under, under certain pressure from certain sections of the Spartak fan base, this is actually the first time since Rubin in 2003 in which a newly promoted team have done the double over Spartak. Richard, what... Uh, sorry, yeah. Richard, what's what's your thoughts on this uh, on this move of... Fadoon pulling the trigger on Zorn's contract at Spartak. It all hints at something behind the scenes, doesn't it? It's all hints at a very unhappy camp. Um, yeah, it, I'll tell you what is interesting with Spartak was um, they went 3-0 up against Arsenal 2 that first game back after the pause and you were thinking, well, foolishly you were thinking, oh yes, here we go. This is like, you know, finally Spartak starting to motor a little bit. They looked totally in control of that game for, 30, for, for, for the best part of 90 minutes. Guilty. And then... Yeah, 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 indeed. And then what happened? That last was it three minutes of the six added minutes that were on at the end of the game. They conceded two goals, um, and then it's almost like that's deflated them, even though they won the game. Um, you know, it's just yeah, it's just deflated them. Telesco really does look temperamental, doesn't he, on the sidelines? Um, like the manager, you know, he got a red card last night for the cent two in quick succession. It was like within seconds of each other, yellow card, and then bump second yellow card. 
Um, and he came across really defensive in his interview too, like when he lost to Tamboff, you know, really starting to like get back in the face of the reporter, you know, he seemed quite defensive, not taking it too well. Um, Zorn leaving now all of a sudden, yeah, that must put Tedesco's um, future at doubt because I remember listening to one of the earlier podcasts, just about the restart, and um, you were going on about he'd only signed... Um, you guys were all talking about it. He only signed a contract until summer 2021. Is that correct? And that's how long his contract, contract Yeah, when he when he first came in. So, yeah, things not looking good all of a sudden now. And, and, and you know, Zorn was, you know, the one who sounded out Tedesco and, and got him in there. Um, and now, you know, I know, I know for Dune, when Zorn left, say to, you know, oh, Tedesco will stay. But, you know, with Zorn having been appointed him at Spartak, you know, don't be surprised now if he's off this summer. It's just more instability and same old Spartak, really. Yeah, that's that's the thing. Same old Spartak, literally SOS, but in the worst kind. I just don't... It, it, it's very much a weird one. It, it, Tesco himself is a bit of an odd manager. We we discussed ourselves in in quick in a quick little uh, discussion before the podcast and about his volatility, as you mentioned. And we asked uh, Alexi... Uh, Zakharov, who's one of the one of our RFN writers and is kind of like the human history book for everything you need to know about Russian football. His knowledge of historical st- st- stats and data is incredible. But he mentioned that <laughs> Tedesco's this season received six yellow cards and two red cards. Not a single other Premier League manager has got any form of caution for anything at all this season. And he's only been in charge for 15 <laughs> games. It's it, it's unbelievable. I've never seen anything like that from a manager, and to an extent, at times he he, he comes across as very volatile. And, and but in his in his press conferences, he he has a go at the referee, he has a go at the opposition fans, he has a go at the opposition players, he has a go at basically everybody, apart from those in his camp, apart from those at Spartak. And I'm not quite sure if this is a old Arsene Wenger or Jose Mourinho like let's take the Alex Ferguson, let's take the limelight away from the players who are struggling right now and stick it on me. Or if it's because he's so volatile and like the Paolo Di Canio at Sunderland, absolutely mental. But from my perspective and the zone itself, this is hasty at best. Tedesco hasn't been doing too great and neither has Zorn has been the man who brought him in directly. But it's clear from the youth being implemented and being played in the games, the, the style of play which has been implemented upon the team. And that's actually been forced for all the way down from the youths down at Tarasovka all the way up to the senior team. They're all playing the same formation. They're all playing the same style of football. That the, It was clear there was a longer-term plan taking shape here, or at least it seemed to be. And it's not the management of the team that's the issue, but above that, which is the issue, is right at the top. Leonid Fadun and that group of apparatchiks who run and control and influence Spartak from behind the scenes and have done for far too long are the root cause of this insanity at the club and they always have been. From forcing out a Carrera to insisting these young Russian players be played, despite, which is always good, don't get me wrong, but despite the fact there's more experienced, more talented and frankly better foreigners missing out on this purely because of these people's opinions externally enforced into the club, into the manager, onto the players who have no choice. And that a lot of that is down to Fadoon. This club's got no long-term strategy from the very top and everything is reactionary. Everything's purely solved by throwing Luke Oil money at it. Oh, damn it, we don't have a midfielder. Right, there's 15 mil for Krell. Well, let's... Oh, damn it. What about a manager? What about a manager? Oh, here's Tedesco. He's only on an 18-month contract, though, because he's got a massive wage. It's just ridiculous. Zorn actually tried to implement a longer-term strategy. Was it working in the very short term? Didn't seem like it, but it's far too early a time to be able to tell that. 
ah, it's just gets me. But why Fadoon is still in charge of this club? I thought the curse would last forever. It only didn't purely because of the brilliance of Carrera and Quincy Promise. Let's get that down to the key. But anyway, on that case, after the one-all draw, Fadoon the with local that is in midweek, Fadoon actually confirmed that current UFA director Shamil Gazizov is set to take over from Thomas Zone. Surprisingly interesting and smart move from Fadoon, do you think, David? Now, you're the UFA expert. Could you tell us a little bit about Gazizov? Yeah, yeah. He's, um, well, he's the mastermind, really, that's that's brought UFA up from, from nothing to uh, a European contender in however long they've existed, nine, nine ten years. Uh, yeah, I mean, he, he's got UFA working on a shoestring budget uh, and consistently competing for mid-table, uh, pushing for the la- the latter European spot um, over the last couple of years. And obviously last year they did play in Europe. Uh, granted, it affected their league standing and they, they did struggle last year. But this year they're back at it and they're, they're, you know, they're above Spartak and they're currently holding that sixth spot, um, which if the cup goes their way, would give them another go in the Europa League. Uh, you look at their, their transfer record and history under Gazizov, players like Zinchenko, obviously at Manchester City, uh, Lunyov, who's at Zeni, Oblyakov, who's at Siska, Diveyev, who's at Siska, granted he's a youth academy player. Um, you know, Ufa have had a very good track record of bringing through young players uh, from nowhere. Krugovoy, obviously, is another one. They bought him out of uh, the Zenit Academy, uh, for nothing, he wasn't even playing at Zenit 2. He was nowhere, and suddenly he's had a good season and a half, and he's going straight back to Zenit again. Um, and that's yeah, that's what Ufa have been built on. They've been built on bringing in players um, for very little money, sometimes from abroad, usually very young players or younger players. Um, someone like Ned Ochara, who's another example, came in at the age of 21, had a very good uh, year under 21s last year. Uh, and then was linked with the big moves to Italy um, for, you know, ranging four to five million euros. And they're just, you know, they're spinning off this for profit. Um, I think, uh, I don't know if we talked about it on a pod, but um, in recent times, they've been trying to get investment from Red Bull and also from uh, City Football Group as well down in Ufa, uh, which would be an interesting move for them. And Gazizov is the one who's been spearheading that leading negotiations. Um, so Spartak obviously looked at that and seen... He's done well. He's, you know, when it whenever we see interviews with Gazizov, he comes across very well. He's a, clearly a very smart man, uh, and he does his job very well. And um, Spartak have just obviously gone with that. Whether he suits them, whether he'll work on a bigger budget, with the extra extra pressure of being in charge of you know the biggest club in the country statistically, um, mm-hmm. is another question. But um, you know, he's certainly got the pedigree and the track record at Ufa that you know perhaps deserves a bigger move and probably a bigger pay pay packet. It's interesting that you bring up the, the Red Bull and City Football Group uh, possible investment in Ufa there because roughly this time last year, there was huge rumours all over the sort of Spartak Twitter sphere and the like Spartak echo chamber that uh, coming from, emanating from Sport Express, I believe at the time, that Spartak were ready to be made the next Red Bull team. Now, that was rubbished. I believe 100% it was, it was pretty much rubbish. This is not going to happen with Spartak. We're the red and white. This is our identity. We do not change our identity. But it's, it probably is just a little bit more than a coincidence that now they're going for Gazizov, the man who's been so heavily in talks with Red Bull group themselves. But despite my rant there about Fadoon, 
do you think, David, that maybe Gazizov could actually implement this longer-term strategy that Fedun is so desperate to get at the club that Zorn attempted to and definitely had intentions to, but necessarily didn't, in which it's about bringing through the youth, especially young Russian youth, young Spartak youth from Talasovka, for as little as possible? Do you think he could uh, implement that at well, a much bigger academy? I mean, it's... It's, it's, it's a difficult question to answer because we've seen him give up on Zorn after less than a year in charge. Uh, obviously, we yeah. don't know everything that's gone on. Um, having a, a foreign a foreigner in charge of one of your, in, you know, in one of the biggest roles at your club, uh, is a it's a strange thing for any Russian team. I think uh, here or Zenit have got uh, I forget his name, but the the ex Manchester United guys doing the. Uh, Sporting director there as well. I think he's the only other foreigner, as far as I'm aware, um, doing that role. Um, and you know, we know we know Spartak can be volatile, um, especially in the management. Um, so whether he gives Gazizov the same sort of leeway um, will be interesting. I, I expect he'll be given a slightly easier time than than Zorn was. I think Zorn was getting a lot of stick uh, in the press for various things, even though he was, you know, he he spoke fluent Russian as well as German, which obviously helped him get on with Tedesco and and the staff. Um, mm-hmm. But it will be interesting, you know, because he's obviously used to working on a string budget and bringing in players on the cheap. They're going to have extra budget. Um, just because Gazizov's the sporting director doesn't mean he necessarily does all the scouting. He's gonna, not going to have the same network. He's going to have a bigger network, but a different network. You know, it's going to be a lot to adapt to and a lot to change in how he works. Um, and I think, I think it will be a big step. And obviously, with a very small summer transfer window of nine days before the next season starts, granted the whole transfer window does carry on, but there's no time to get players in early and get them integrated into the team. Uh, players are going to have to come in. You know, throughout July and August, as the league has already started, um, not even July and August, just August, I suppose, in general. Um, so, so it's going to be a very tough adaptation period. And I think because of that, they'll they'll give him a little bit longer. I think the key per, the key period for Gazizov is going to be probably um, next winter with the long break and the long transfer window, um, and that will be the chance where he really gets to stamp his mark on on what Spartak are going to do. Um, in terms of building the squad going forwards. Yeah, I, I suppose the problem with questions like can Gazizov do this at Spartak when he has never done it at a club like that before, he's not even started his job yet, is essentially how long is a piece of string? And that piece of string is, is how long Leonid Fadoon's temper and patience is. But there's, it was in, in Sport Express today, it was um, Dmitry Smilnov, who was the... Deputy editor in chief at SE. He, he was just he was a long opinion piece on Gazizov and and Fadun and basically looking into why he he did this and and it's basically well known inside the Russian media circles. He meant he mentions that it wasn't anything like a a snap decision in reaction to the match. It was purely because Gazizov was available because Gazizov is interested and they wanted to get him in. Now, because the short, like I said, week break in between the two seasons, now that's obviously whether Fadoon is telling the entire truth there or not as remains to be seen. But it it does seem like a low annoyance at Zorn being sacked to get a replacement in so quickly to get what hopefully could be a, 
a very efficient and effective replacement, and it is certainly a very smart and savvy operator in Gazizov. You've just got to say it it, it, it it doesn't smack of the usual sort of Spartak reactionary action. It's a little bit too calculated for Fadoon, and it's kind of worrying, to be quite honest. But lastly, we now need to look a bit further down the table, and down at the bottom is the relegation battle. It's really heating up right now. So Arsenal, Tula, lost again, and now have only won one in their last six, while Krilia are undefeated under new boss Andrei Talalayev, and Akmat Glozny, who started at the restart, rock bottom, have picked up 10 points from 15, winning three of the last five games against all against potential relegation rivals, and that's putting them likely out of contention at all for relegation. In the whole, six points separate sixth from 15th at the time of speaking, but the bottom three sides have all got pretty difficult games left. Now, everyone knows we're big admirers of the work carried out at Chertanova. And once again, the Chertanova axis of Zinkovsky Glushenkov led Krilia to victory at the weekend. The former has now got eight assists of the season, and Glushenkov's got three in his last five goals, that is. David, do you think Krilia will stay up? Straightforward? Uh, do I think they're going to stay up? <laughs> Logically, the answer is no, just based on their fixtures. Um, but, you know, I'm hoping they can get a win, especially, uh, they're, I think they can do something at Dinamo. Um, but then, that you know, they've also got to rely on someone above them dropping points. And now, granted, everyone down there has got difficult fixtures in the, rem- in the remainder of the season. Uh, so it's likely that they're all going to drop points. Um, it's just going to be who can get a crucial victory in these last three games. Um and I'm, I don't care who goes down out of Akhmat and Tambov. I, I would like Krilia to stay up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, this is where we show our bias a little bit, especially against Akhmat, which they're kind of famous for. But <laughs> I think it's it's hard not to look at Krilia and kind of admire the youth that they've got there and, and look at the job Talalayev has done. Now, I've, I've been quite impressed personally with him. As mentioned, he's undefeated, taken five from five from a possible nine. Like, difficult games as well. Obviously, they swept aside Arsenal Tula, but they drew with Loco and drew with Rostov away. Very credit, creditable results for sure. Now, the one big change is really made at the back is bringing in Vitaly Lysov. Now, he's he's been an absolute rock in these three games. He's, he was signed last summer by Krilia, actually, from Benfica B. He's only started two games prior to the to Talalaya's introduction. And I personally thought last week that Tambov would be in trouble with only really Georgi Melkadze on loan from Spartak showing any signs of genuine attack and prowess, but they just keep scoring and keep kind of eking out results when you least expect it. I mean, defeating Spartak 3-2 was obviously, I, I, I didn't expect that whatsoever in any world, but it was it was kind of a weird game because they just set piece the way the win, but they deserved it by the end. And it, it was a brilliant result for them. Don't get me wrong. Absolutely fantastic result. It just came out of nowhere. And they've scored. The, before that, they lost the last four, but they'd scored in every single one. So Tambov kind of just like keep giving themselves hope and just edging above the water, just kind of like floating slightly above it. So Richard, you you saw the game. Uh, do you think that Tambov deserved the result against Spartak? Or, and do you think they could stay up against uh, Karelia's expense or maybe in other teams? 
One thing I will say about um, Tamboff against um, Spartak James is that it wasn't just the typical, you know, oh, a small club, sit back, hit them on the break with a set with a set piece or, or, or a counter. It wasn't that kind of game. I, I think Spartak did have more chances overall, but Tamboff played well. They had chances. Uh, they rubbed the luck a little bit. Um, they There was a great chance when it was 1-0. Um, I think it was Sobolev, I think, on 54 minutes. He on goal and shot wide. So they, they did ride the luck a little bit. But um, they did really well in the game, I thought. You know, they showed an impressive tenacity to come back from a goal down. You always have to admire a team doing that, especially one right down in the bottom of the league. Um, and in fact, all season, I've been impressed with the fight and resilience. You know, the odds have been against them right from the start. You know, you know they got promoted, newly promoted from the um, second tier. They had a huge turnover of players in the summer, uh, well into double figures for new arrivals. And, the, and I think there was a, a follow-on from that in the uh, in the winter transfer window as well. Plus having to play all the um, games in firstly Saransk and Nishinovgorod too. That's unhelpful. They're basically playing away all the time because, you know, Tam- the stadium in Tamboff doesn't meet RPL requirements. Um, Georgi Yartsev's there as chairman. Obviously, he's got a lot of experience in uh, Russian football before, so maybe that's been a big help with things. Um yeah, no, I think they played very well. I say no Melkadze. That was um, an in- the interesting one because he scored seven goals for them. Uh, Obukov, I think, has got seven and he scored the vital penalty. Um, Gritsayenko scored a great header from a set piece um, to make it 2-2 and he got ahead of Alex Kral and um, planted the ball home. Um, I think he's done quite well, Gritsayenko, in-, in that game. Oli Awali, I saw the Oli Awali. I mean, he impressed me at um, Orenburg a little bit and he- he's 36 now, but... Um, he's a, he's a leader at the back there for them. Uh, do I think they will survive? It's a tight one, isn't it? Um, it's such a tight one. I personally think no. I think Quilia and Akmat will escape, but it will be very, very close. I mean, I'll tell you what, though. One thing on Saturday, which is important, Arsenal-Tula against Tambor. That is a massive, massive game. Uh, if, if Arsenal-Tula lose that one, then they're firmly in with it. Um, it's certainly going to go down to the wire, isn't it? It's it's so tight down there. It's it's amazing. What what an end to the season. Yeah, certainly. I, I, now, if we're going to go predictions, last week pretty much, one team, one name. I mean, Orenberg are gone. Orenberg are dead. We all know that. Let's ignore Orenberg. One team, one name. <laughs> who's going down? Richard, who do you think? I'll stick my neck out and say Tamboff, but very, very tight. I'll say Tamboff to go down. David, how about you? I think I think uh, oh, I'm going to bold and say Ahmed. Yes, that's what I was wanting to hear. Get them down. No, sorry. That was a little <laughs> bit unbiased of me. <laughs> but I, I, I think Tambov personally. I, I, I can see Krilia picking up points and what they've got left and Tambov got some pretty rough games. Not quite as rough as Orenburg, Zenit and Petersburg mine next week and I think that's probably been it for them for the season. Speaking of which, that's been it for us for the RFN podcast this week. Thanks again, Richard. Oh, you're very welcome, guys. Good to, uh, good to be back on the podcast, uh, Frank. Um, been a pleasure. And thank you, David. No problem. See you again next week. And so next week, we've got the double header of weekend and midweek games again. As Richard mentioned earlier, Arsenal Tula faces off against the rivals at the bottom in Tambov. Meanwhile, in the race for Europe, Lokomotiv Moscow hosts Siska in another capital derby. Check out the site at russianfootballnews.com for coverage of the games and wider goings-on in the pyramid, including a quick update and new development on the Edward Strelsov historic trial, an analysis into Thomas Zorn's sacking and impending appointment of Shamil Gazizov. I've been James Nichols. That's at James Nichols on Twitter.
David, what's, what's your handle on Twitter? Uh, my Twitter is at RFN underscore David. And Richard, where can we find you online? You can you can find me online at um, at RichDPike89, at Rich, R-I-C-H, D-Pike, P-I-K-E, 89. This has been the RFN Podcast. Goodbye for now. Веди его, беги, точнее его удар Но мяч берет ноги решительный вратарь Не напрасно футбольное поле Самых ловких и смелых плечок Здесь нужны тренировка и воля Быстрота, увлечение, расчет